this morning, as we've been looking at the beginning of the Gospel of John, I kind of want to start out by, you know, telling a little cheesy story. And I don't do that often, because I'm really bad at telling stories. But, hey, here it goes. So, once upon a time, there was a blind turtle, and it lived in a well. And one day, a turtle from the ocean was taking a little trip inland and happened to stumble into this well alongside this blind turtle. And the blind turtle was really excited because for once, there's company. Trying to strike up conversation, the blind turtle asks, so where are you from? And the sea turtle says, well, I'm from the ocean. The blind turtle doesn't know what that is. So he's like, okay, um, well, is it big? Yeah, it's, it's pretty big. Uh, is it this big? And the blind turtle swims a small circle there in the well. And the sea turtle's like, yeah, it's, it's much bigger than that. Oh, you must have it pretty good. Well, is it this big, the blind turtle says, and swims a circle about two-thirds the size of his well. And the sea turtle says, yeah, you know, it's bigger than that. The blind turtle says, well, surely it's not as big as this entire well of mine. And the sea turtle explains, you know, I understand that you've never experienced any other water than what you have here in this well. So what I'm about to say to you is really difficult for you to understand. Not only just because this is all you've ever experienced, but you're not even fully able to experience what you've always experienced because of your blindness. But you ask, how big is the ocean? You could swim with all your might for many years, and you wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of all there is in the vastness of the sea. To that, the blind turtle replies, impossible. You're lying. You're insecure about your home, and you just don't want to feel left out. So you're making your place sound better than mine. Today, we're talking about things that are really hard to understand. And with that, they're hard to understand just to try to understand them. But what makes it even harder to understand is that in a lot of ways, we're like that blind turtle. Um, we've only ever known the things of this earth. We've only ever known things that pertain to time. We've only ever known what we've known, and we can only know them with the capacities that we have to um, get to know them or experience them. So our ability to comprehend the things that we're going to be talking about this morning is kind of small. This morning, we're talking about God. And as we begin to talk about God, it's really good for us to recognize how limited our minds are. We're at a loss when we try to think about the infinite and eternal one. Because what do you know of infinity? What do you know of eternity? Even our very language is limited when we try to communicate these things. We're trying to express the realities of eternity with human speech. There was a church father named Dionysius the Areopagite. And when he would describe God in terms that we find familiar about God, like when he would describe God as the light, he would call him the super light. When he would call God, like, the God of all grace, he would call him the God of super grace. Any of the descriptions of God, he would attach that expression super. And when people would ask him, why do you attach that? He would explain that whatever I mean by, when, by God is light, God is surely beyond what I mean by that. Whatever my concept is, God is greater than my concept. So he would always add that, the super, in front of any description of God. Because he understood how very limited like, his 
ability to express. And I'll tell you, like, some of the theological works of Dionysius, they are beyond anything that I've ever read by anybody in terms of, like, depth of, like, mind-blowing kind of experiences. And yet he's like, whatever I mean, God's beyond that. You're like, whoa, okay. That's a beautiful way to describe the living God. The God who made you and I, what's amazing about him is he didn't just create us to leave us alone. He didn't just create us and leave us to wander. The revelation of God through the Bible is is that the true and living God wants you to know him. When John begins this gospel, he starts with the highest. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And after telling us about the one who is the source of true, abundant life, the one who created all things, created man in his image, saw that it was good, the one who shines in the darkness... And the reason he shines in the darkness, even though the darkness isn't comprehending it, he continues to shine because he loves. He's been shining from the beginning. The Creator. The Creator did what no one could have ever imagined. The one who was with God, the one who was God, the Word, the fullness of the mind of God, the Word as we see in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. You know, the philosophies of that day and the religions of that day had proven to be broken. You had in that day and age the the Greek concepts of their like pantheon. And in their pantheon, they would have their deities. And they would tell their stories of how some god or some goddess would come down from Mount Olympus in disguise as if they were a human. And they'd have their adventures, normally along the way, taking advantage of humans. But once things would get tough, that deity would just throw off their disguise, zap around their powers, and then boom, back to the place of all their gods. That is not incarnation. That, if that was what you describe as Christianity, God just disguising himself as man, that God just putting on a human suit. Um, actually, that's a, that's a heresy called Nestorianism. That's that there was a human, and then God snuck into that human and cruised around. That would mean that the human is a son, and the divine from heaven that hid himself in that human is a son, and there's two sons. There are not two sons. There's one son who has united himself with creation. Those gods of the Greek pantheon, they were never really human. They only looked that way. They don't deal with any real human limitations. They don't have to put up with true human hardships. They don't live the normal human experience. All they're doing is playing a game. That's not what God did. John is writing about a true incarnation. The Word who said, let there be and there was. The uncreated Creator who created all things outside of Himself and looked upon His creation. The Word, which even in that is beautiful, right? Like, if you look at the Spanish Bible and that verse, the Word in the beginning was the Word. That Word is the word um, verbos. 
You know, and I think, what does that sound like in English? That sounds like a verb. What's a verb? It's an action word. It's a very specific kind of word. It's an activity, like an action word. The word, the totality of the mind of God, the fullness of the expression of who God is. In the beginning, God created. Whoa, what's that? There's the verb. There's the action. That's John 1, verse 3. All things were created or made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. All through the creation. And God said, let there be light. What's said? Whoa, God doing something. The expression of God. God said, let there be light. God said, God said, he spoke it. And all of God's creation, the creator created outside of himself and then looked upon it and behold, it was very good. But the uncreated creator of all things, who had created all things outside of himself, on the incarnation of Christ, he created within himself. He became creation. He took upon himself our flesh with all that that means. It isn't that he just clothed himself in humanity as if it was some separate thing. There was a complete union. So that Christ our Lord has the divine nature, and yet Christ our Lord has the human nature, and is not two persons, one person with two natures. So that Christ our Lord has the divine will, and yet has a human will, and is not two persons, but one. And all that creation means accepting all the limitations that are part of the human experience, the human existence. The Word became flesh. <laughs> Aristotle had his concept of the logos. These philosophers of the day, you know, like Socrates, and then Plato with his forms, and then um, uh, Aristotle with his modes of or, or um, relations, and, uh, you know, with nature and primary properties and accidental properties and all of that. But he had this concept of, with, with the philosophies of the day, that there's a God. And that God expresses himself. There's this expression of the Logos. Even at a time where a guy named Plontius was a super popular Hebrew or um, Jewish philosopher of the day, and he would use that expression of the Logos. But like Aristotle, his mindset was, if God is perfect then he's only going to set his mind on what's perfect. And so the only thing that the perfect God can do and think about is himself. So God, the creator of all things, was like impersonal. He's just sitting up there just thinking about himself all the time. And yet that's not the gospel either. John blows everybody's mind, all the broken philosophies of the day, all the broken religions of the day, and he crashes in with this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. And one of the things that is kind of a surprise about John's gospel is after he goes from this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he says, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. Now, if I was to read that and I know a little bit about John, I'd be like, oh, I know what he's talking about. I would think that John would talk about the transfiguration. Because there was an event that Jesus left all the other disciples and took three disciples with him. Took them up on a high mountain, and there on that mountain, he was transfigured before them, where he began to shine in a brightness that he said, like, you couldn't even get things that white with soap. 
the brightness of that light that was shining, it wasn't a created light like when God said, let there be and there was. That's a created light. This was the very light that he is himself. This is that true eternal light that shines from his person, that God is light, an uncreated light emanating from Jesus. It, it blew Peter's mind. Peter was one of the three. It blew his mind so much that even in his epistle, he talks about it, how he was with him there on the holy mountain, how he heard the voice from heaven. He wanted to bring it up. And you would think of all the Gospels, here's John, he'd be like, oh, let me tell you something that I have a very unique perspective on. And he would write about the transfiguration. In fact, it tells us there in Matthew 17, verse 1, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. He was there. Led them on a high mountain by themselves. For being one of three guys invited to that moment, I would have expected John to emphasize it. But as you go through the Gospel of John, he doesn't bring it up. The other Gospels, they all bring it up. But John leaves it out. Because John's not focused on a one moment of glory. Of this one unique thing. He's not talking about a light that shined on a mountain. He's talking about a glory, a whole different expression of glory. He likes the term glory, by the way. He uses the word 18, the noun of glory, 18 times. The only other New Testament writer that says it more is Paul. So this super important aspect of the life of Jesus, glory, but the glory on the mountain is not what he's focusing on. Instead, it's this disparate, different aspect of glory, a glory that was seen even back in the Garden of Eden. A glory that was seen in the day that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. There was a glory seen that day. And though there was a curse, the day that they sinned in the garden, the curse was in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What did they find instead? They didn't find a God who came to curse them they found a God who pursued them, a God who came to restore them. That's the same God that John writes about where he says, for he sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Who had the right to condemn? The one who pronounced that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But what did they find instead? The glory of a God who pursued his people to restore them. And a judgment that was pronounced, but it wasn't pronounced on them, and it wasn't of their destruction. It was a promise of judgment on the wicked one. That he would be destroyed. That his head would be crushed. And instead of finding a God who brought death to them, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die we actually find the first death in the Bible mentioned even though veiled because Adam and Eve had been trying to cover themselves in fig leaves. And after God brought them to a place of confession and a promise of future victory that would be found only in the Messiah, that God himself clothed them with skins. Something had to die. And the first death in the Bible in order to cover the sin of man, was brought about at the hands of God, pointing towards the redemption that would be ours in Christ Jesus. And there's glory to be seen in that. God clothed them. There's glory there. John focused on a glory that was seen at the wedding. In Cana of Galilee, when here's a, a, a couple that are going about their wedding celebration and they run out of wine for the normal celebration. And Mary says to Jesus, like, hey, they've ran out of wine. 
And he's like, hey, my hour hasn't come. But he still, she still tells the guys, hey, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus took the water and he filled it. And for those that were serving it, they knew what was going on. But what was being drunk that day was the best of the best when it came to wine. So much so that the steward of the, the feast, he knew exactly like, wow, everybody, they always bring out the best at the beginning and then they bring out the worst later. But you've saved the best till now. And that whole miracle is wrapped up with this little expression that says, and this first of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee when he showed forth his glory. The glory of like, you are the creator God, the one who inhabits eternity. And yet, instead of pronouncing judgment, you would pronounce the gospel, a promise of restoration. You would provide skins to cover me. You would come to a wedding. What are you even doing at my wedding? Why do you care? You have better things to do. Oh, I messed up and didn't plan good, and you're doing miracles to bless me. You're, there's a glory there. There's a glory there that's not mechanical. It is extremely relational. A God who reveals himself and interacts with his creation. glory that was seen when the omnipotent, eternal God. Omnipotent means all-powerful. He is the all-powerful God. And yet, in John chapter 4, we find him weary from the journey. Resting by a well. There's a glory that's seen in the eternal, omnipotent God being weary. When the very one who tells the woman, if you would have known who it is that asks you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Because if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if anyone drinks of the water that I shall give, he will never thirst. The one who is weary from the journey, the one who is thirsty and yet promising to forever quench thirst. There's a glory that's there. A glory that was seen in the humility and the service and the suffering and ultimately the dying. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld that glory. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Why did the Word become flesh? The author tells us in Hebrews that it's to suffer death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus made a little lower than the angels. Why did the eternal Son become the Son of Man? He came down in human flesh to get down as low as we were. The eternal God entered into his creation to serve and to die. And there's glory there. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, who being in the very form of God, setting the heights, humbled himself. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 113, verse 5 and 6, Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth? 
It tells us that God humbles himself just to look at what's going on. Like him in his perfection, it is a, a, a humbling for him to just look at us and be mindful of us. But as we've seen, that God didn't just behold. God entered into creation. The word became flesh. And there's glory there. And consider the manner in which he came from heaven, the glory of heaven to earth, to this place, from omnipotence to a helpless baby, from infinite to infant. From the highest of glory to abject poverty. From the throne of heaven to an animal stable in Bethlehem. And then the king of kings welcomed in an animal stable, welcomed then by shepherds, and then immediately hunted like an animal. And yet there's glory there. The God of glory. Who in the Old Testament, the God of glory thunders, the Bible says. El Shaddai, mighty in battle. And yet we find him fleeing and being forced into exile. And there's glory there. He humbled himself. At 12 years old, Mary heard the pronouncement of the angels. She knew about the miracle of the virgin birth. All of those things she pondered it in her heart. And yet at 12 years old, when he was in the temple about his father's business, he's getting lectured by his mom. What a confusing time. Like, I'm trying to be obedient with God to, to my father, and yet you're lecturing me. And yet, in the humility of that moment, because like, honestly, like, if, if my daughter had an important job to do, and then I challenged her, she'd give me attitude. Don't you know I'm about something better? But man... The humility, there's glory there. And then waiting patiently 30 years to begin his public ministry. Being baptized by John, the one who confessed, I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal. The one who said to Jesus when he came out to be baptized, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus said, let it be. Like, suffer it so that all righteousness is fulfilled. And immediately led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there's glory there. You know why that's so important for us? The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. To have a God who knows you. Not like book smart kind of know. Like he knows you. He has entered into the rejection, he has entered into the sadness, entered into the poverty, entered into the pain. Beyond measure, he entered into this. And can now sympathize with our weakness. When he began his ministry, speaking of the kingdom, his style, it wasn't aimed at the rich and famous, and there's glory there. He didn't seek the powerful and the, the elite. He said, let the little children come to me. And not just the little children. In Luke 5, 30 and 31, and their scribes and the Pharisees complained against the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick this is the glory of God that John focuses on. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
A glory that was manifested to our fallen parents that sinned in the garden as he showed up to rescue them and to seek and save that which is lost. A glory that came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The glory of God is seen there. 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. But it isn't just that the word became flesh. It's not just that the that, that infinity in the person of Jesus Christ, comes down into a finite world. It's not just that the creator comes and, like, creates himself into his creation. Because, again, remember, he doesn't just clothe himself in humanity. Like, what Jesus was as he walked this earth was truly man. And yet was truly God. It's not just that the word became flesh. It's that he dwelt among us. Among us. Not the us that we think we are. Remember last week I talked about like if you've ever ever spent any time with like a meth addict, they'll tell you a story of who they are. Just need to do this, this, and this, and everything's going to be great. Then I have this plan and it's all going to be awesome. And they tell you that, and you know it's a lie, but they believe it because they've been telling it to themselves for so long. And we do that same thing. We tell these lies to ourselves over and over and over and over again. And then the lies that we tell ourselves that we begin to believe, then we begin to tell others. And we all give ourselves all kinds of room thinking that we're way better than what we are. And yet he come, he, he came and dwelt among us to his creatures. Not creatures like the birds, right? The birds are praising their creator. Oh, the birds are just singing and they're praising and they're doing what they're supposed to. And you hear them, they're up early praising. The birds worship louder than you do. Man, and it's awesome go out to Honolulu, and sometimes you see the spinner dolphins. Man, they're just having fun. They're just praising the Lord, doing what they do with all of their might. The Bible tells us that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Like all creation is joining in. All creation knows. All creation is groaning, except for one aspect of creation where every other aspect of creation is joining in in this chorus of praise, the part of creation that was created in his image has turned against him, is trying to know better or act like they know better than him, is rejecting and denying and rebelling against him. All the other creation is joining in in the symphony, but what's in his image has turned against him. They hated him. Remember, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, they threw him out. And yet he came to dwell among his enemies. In that very thing, you see that this is not human. You see the deity of Christ so clearly. Because if you're ever like, man, I'm so lonely. I'm so, I'm just so lonely. I know. I'm going to go make friends with my enemies. Like, that's not what people do. They're like, I will die alone, but without my enemies. very thing that we see in the deity of Christ, that he seeks his enemies for his company. It takes God to come down and dwell among those that are opposed to him. 
The Bible tells us when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies, and yet he so loved us. When Jesus, the eternal word, came down among his creatures, he knew that they were against him, his enemies, and yet he came. He came without any earthly defenses to his enemies. He came in the humility of unarmed flesh to his enemies. You know, like, the world's kind of weird. And when, like, when Hannah is going to go out for a walk or whatever, if she wants to go by herself, I always make sure, like, hey, uh, you got your pepper spray? <laughs> and some people are like, why do you think she needs pepper spray? And I'll tell you right now, honestly, I hope she never needs pepper spray. Really, I'm not telling her, like, I bought this. See where you can use it. <laughs> Just try it out. <laughs> well, my husband got me this, and I have to use it. No, like, I would hope she never uses it. I hope she has it and never needs it. I would way rather that than her need it and not have it. Because I know that there are people out there that are wicked. And they do evil things. And it's things that you can't even make sense of. You can't even answer why. And so I know, like, hey, like, go and think the best of everybody, but just in case, it's nice to, you know, be able to protect yourself. But when he came came without earthly defenses. In fact, he came so defenseless, he came as a preborn child, forming in his mother's womb, a newborn child, completely dependent upon the protection and care of his mother. So from like, Conception, all the way through, completely dependent upon the nurture and care of his mother. I was thinking about this this week. To this day in the Jewish culture, Jew, the, the Jewish people have a certain dietary law that is you cannot eat milk or dairy and meat in the same meal. In fact, when you go to Israel, if they serve dairy, it's on a different, they like make a whole other entrance to the restaurant so that this side of the restaurant only serves meat. If you want a dairy stuff, you got to go to the other side. Those two won't go in the, like they, you can't have those on the same plate because the Jewish law says you shall not boil a calf in its mother's milk. Because the mother is supposed to be that place of care and protection, of nurture and providing. It's supposed to be that safe thing. Even if it's like accidental, you don't want to have that which is meant for the nurture and care of that livestock even. To end up being boiling, to, to have that livestock being boiled in its mother's milk. Nurture and care, not destruction. Because all the way through that whole process, it's so fragile that that should be the safest place for a baby. And yet here is the King of glory, the eternal, uncreated God, omnipotent, the infinite, and like I said, coming as an infant, Completely dependent on the care and nurture of his mother. Who ever heard of anyone setting out to conquer his enemies without weapons? Romans 5, 
6 through 8 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's more like they're against God rather than just like absent of God. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still ungodly, while we were powerless, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, like we just saw in Romans 5.10. We were adversaries to everything that God stood for. When we were lost, we were on the devil's team doing the devil's work, opposed to God and enemy of God. And no matter how much people think, well, you know, I kind of like God or I love God. That person's not saved. They're a liar. They don't love God. What they love is themselves. And if you can offer them anything that will give them an amplified version of themselves, they're going to be all about it. How can I make me more? Well, here's this God that will amplify you. Cool, I'll take anything. I'll take a God. I'll take a dog or a tree. I'll take whatever. I'll do charity if it makes me look wonderful. And they don't do it because they care for the poor. They don't do, they do it because they care for them, and they're trying to amplify themselves. But that's a whole other topic. God says that the lost are his enemies. But get this. It says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So in Romans, it says that he died for his enemies. But Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And I have called you friends. So where's the enmity? It was us against him. It's not him against us. His, he's coming in love to rescue and redeem. He's coming to die for those that are set against him. He's coming to die in the hands of those that he's coming to rescue. And he's calling them friend. What did he say to Judas? Friend, why have you come? And there's glory there. He died for those who hated him, for those who rejected him. For those who cheered as the nails were being driven in his hands. John 19, 14 through 16. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And they said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And we beheld his glory. And to wrap it up with verses 15 through 18. It says, John bore witness of him. And cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me. John is bearing witness of Jesus. John bears witness that he himself, John, is older than Jesus. And yet, he's saying that Jesus was preferred before him because he was, he was before him. So John is bearing witness of the eternal nature of Jesus. He's bearing witness of the deity of Christ, the preexistence, that he was before me. And there's glory there. For John, when he bore witness, he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It goes on, it says, 
in verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. We received his fullness and grace upon grace like waves on the shore. Grace upon grace until we're overwhelmed. Not in judgment, but grace upon grace. Judgment is by the law and the law came by Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there's glory there. And this last verse. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. To Moses, God, Moses said, God, let me see your glory. And God said to Moses, you cannot see me and live. But Jesus, Colossians 2.9 tells us, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus said to Philip in John 14.9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? No one has seen God at any time, it says in John 1.18. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The translation here is interesting. It says, no one has seen God. And if you were to look that up in like a, you know, a lexicon, you would see that that word, no one has seen God, and you'd find the word theos. Oh, okay, no one has seen God. Where we get our root for theology, right? No one has seen God at any time. And then you see the only begotten. And right there, when it talks about begotten, like, that's that eternal relation with the Father that distinguishes the Father and the Son, right? The Father is of His alone, uh, alone. like, he, uh, He's not begotten, He's not proceeding, right? But in His paternity. The Son is of the Father alone, not from the Spirit, but not born, but begotten. Not created, but begotten. So there's that eternal sonship. And then the eternal relation to the Father and the Son by the Spirit is proceeding. He proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. I don't need to go to that. I'm just doing it because it's in my mind. So when you hear begotten, right away that's a clue. Like, oh, that's speaking of sonship. Okay. And so our Bible translates it, the only begotten Son. But if you look it up in your lexicon, you'd see that the word there isn't Son. It's not technon. It's not weos. What is that word? It's the word theos. No one has seen Theos, God, at any time. But the only begotten Theos, that's God, has declared him. What is Jesus? Jesus is the eternal word of the Father. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So you have like a unity and a distinction. Jesus is the declaration of all that the Father is. He is the off-shining of His glory, the express image of His person. And we beheld His glory, the glory of God. And where have we seen it? Well, we see it in the cross. Father, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? But for this hour, I've come into the world. Father, glorify your name. 
And the son respond, or the father responds, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. The birth of Jesus was contrary to the laws of life. Everybody else was born. 23 chromosomes from mom, 23 chromosomes from dad, a long tra- like chain of, of genealogy. And yet Jesus, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Six days the Lord created and on the seventh day he rested. Until there's 23 chromosomes showing up in the womb of Mary. It becomes the fountainhead of all the new creation. Birth contrary to the laws of life. Death contrary to the laws of death. As no one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own. He didn't have like farms and fisheries, and yet he could spread a table and feed 5,000 with fish and bread. He didn't walk on beautiful marble or you know, fancy floors, but he walked on the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> And that day they came to take him to the cross. The guards would have never been able to lay hands on him if he didn't allow it. And they said, he said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And remember, they all fell over backwards. And yet Jesus had no need to come to earth. He could have just stayed there in the, the joy and glory and splendor of heaven itself. But he left it. He came to earth, this earth. He came and dwelt among us. He came to live in poverty and rejection. He didn't need to, but he did. And then he died the death of the cross. He didn't have to, but he did. And there we beheld his glory. Glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's glory there.